All right, we've been uh, coming here through the book of Ephesians, and we're so grateful for this letter that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, really not to correct anything. Uh, there wasn't uh, problems in the church there that uh, he needed to address. There wasn't even uh, false teaching or heresy being taught that the Apostle Paul needed to straighten out. But we know that he wrote it from prison. We understand that he knew that this would probably be one of the last writings that he would have. And so, like a good parent on Father's Day, uh, probably more on Mother's Day, though, when you go to leave the house, it's your mom that says, do you have, and she begins to do the list of everything that you're supposed to have. Funny thing, she does that for me, too. But uh, she does, and she goes through the list of all that we're supposed to have, uh, having just gone through a wedding and and all of that, boy, I tell you, we had lists galore, and I'm so very thankful uh, for my wife and, and those mothers that do that for both their children and for their husband to make sure. But here the Apostle Paul, as we've looked at in the first chapter, he reminded them in the first chapter after his greeting of their spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. He said there in verse 3, blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says to the believers there in Ephesus, who had blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, reminding the Ephesians here in the church at Ephesus what they had. We looked last week at, at his prayer for the church in verses 15 through 23 there in chapter 1. And he said in verse 16, Cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, and how he prayed and what he prayed for the church. And now in what we have, our chapter divisions. The Apostle Paul didn't write his letter in chapters, but we have that for clarification and for ease for us. But he begins a section of his letter to remind the Ephesians, this church here at Ephesus, that we, as he's going to see, say here in, in the first couple of verses, that we're made alive by God's grace. It's very familiar I don't know if you'd say plot, but sometimes shows, sometimes even books, um, someone's in distress, and maybe even to the point of death. Maybe their car is flipped upside down in the water or something like that. But always, they're hopeless, and they're unable to help themselves when, all of a sudden, from stage right or stage left, a hero appears to save them, to pull them from the flames or pull them from the creek. And then the next thing we see is a few days or a few weeks have passed, and this individual who was saved, waking in a hospital bed, unsure of what happened and all that had transpired, and a witness appears, a friend maybe who saw the ordeal unfold to testify of one who was saved concerning the reality of the hopelessness and their situation, and the brave self-sacrificing actions of the hero who saved them. And... How does the story go? The one who is delivered is moved to say concerning the hero, he or she saved my life. I'm eternal, eternally grateful. And to this individual, I owe them everything. And that really is a scene out of the book of Ephesians because it's here in chapter number two that Paul testifies to you and I, the Christian, concerning the hopelessness and really the helplessness of our condition and the fact that we're spiritually alive today, those of us that have placed our faith in Jesus Christ only 
because God took the initiative to rescue us through the blood of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. This, in my opinion, is the most powerful section of Paul's epistle here to the Ephesians as it pertains really to us, to opening the eyes of the Christian, maybe once again. Because you know what happens? It's, it's kind of like glasses. Some of you that saw me this morning saw that I had glasses on and magically my glasses disappeared because magically my contact case reappeared. And so before the morning service, I was able to put my contacts back in. But those of you that wear glasses know, especially when you're doing something, working, dusting, sweeping. Uh, for those of you that work construction, David, you probably get a lot when you're sawing with the saw. Uh, slowly, little by little, your glasses become clouded. We're, we're redoing our bathroom. And, and last night, evening, um, during the second half of the game that I couldn't watch because it was way too close, I said, this is a great time to go up and sand the walls in the bathroom. And so I did. And, it, and it, as it happens, your glasses slowly become clouded so that when you take them off and, and you clean them off and put them back on, it's almost like a whole new world that you're seeing. You're seeing vibrant colors where once because of grease or dust, uh, it become just a little bit dim. And for us, that's what Paul does here, uh, is he re-reminds us, if we want to say that word, if that is a word, of the marvelous grace that's found in Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul's stated objection here in, in the book of Ephesians, like I said, wasn't to solve a problem, but it's to open the eyes of us, God's children, to, again, the marvelous grace and, and the overflowing love of God shown to us through his son, Christ Jesus. That's what he reported for them, even, even uh, in verse 15 of, the, of chapter number one, where he said, wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, and then over in chapter 3, and we'll get to that in a couple weeks in verse 14, where he says this, For this cause, this cause of Christ, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. His prayer was, and always will be, that, that Christians, both Jews and Gentiles alike, would have our eyes opened once again. And almost on a daily basis, we need to do this, to the greatness of God's love for us, so that they would then walk worthy of the calling in which we are called. And I'm saying that this passage today before us is the most powerful in the epistle because it, it reminds us of the marvelousness of the grace of God and to the fact that every blessing that you and I are experiencing today or will experience tomorrow or have experienced this past week is because Christ and what he did on the cross and God has determined to set his love upon us, to rescue us that he did out of our state of sin and misery and to raise us again to new life through Jesus Christ. Truth be told, we as human beings in our pride, we tend to minimize, even us Christians, after the fact of salvation, sometimes we tend to minimize the severity of our sin and the helplessness of our condition when thinking of our life before Christ. You know, it's kind of like the older person telling the story of the good old days, you know how it is. In the good old days, when we walked to school uphill both ways, you know, those stories. And we tend sometimes to forget that the good old days sometimes weren't good. They were old <laughs> and were old, but sometimes they weren't always good. And that happens sometimes to us as Christians, is we forget about the hopelessness of our life and our condition 
before salvation. Here, Paul is that, that witness that comes to us there in our hospital bed as we recover. And he comes to say, brother, sister in Christ, you have to know this. You were dead. You were lying there lifeless and hopeless as the, the flames or the water drew near. And, and, and this man put his own life on the line to save you. In fact, he himself was touched by the flames as he drug you to safety. And once there, he breathed into your lungs the breath of life until you were revived. And it wasn't luck and it wasn't chance that saved you. You didn't crawl out of that situation on your own. Indeed, you couldn't have even called out for help. Being as dead as you were, but this man, this hero, took the initiative. And by his grace, you were saved. It wasn't of your own doing. You owe him everything. This morning, as we look at this wonderful story of the grace of God concerning our salvation and our new life in Christ, remember this, that it's all by the grace of God alone. We live today in a world that desires for us to have the preeminence, that mankind is so smart and so wonderful and so uh, innovative. Look at all that we can do. And you know, today, I really am thankful for all that mankind has been able to do through God's grace. I, I love technology. I, I love medicine now as opposed to sometimes, you know, when you see pictures of old dental equipment, I cringe because it looks barbaric, you know, and the method by which they accomplish things, uh, having, I know, Doug, you're a, a Civil War historian, per se, and some of their medical practices for taking off limbs, oh, we're so thankful for anesthesia today. We really, really are. Uh, you have probably been where I have been several times in my life when one morning I had a, a toothache so bad and made the appointment and I couldn't drive to the dentist fast enough because this tooth in the top part of my mouth, it's like my head was ready to explode. Can you feel the pain in your teeth right now? Because you, you all can relate to this. I was in so much pain that when I got to the dental office and I stopped the car and I turned it off, I didn't take the keys out with me because I was probably pulling my hair or holding my head or something along those lines. I didn't even put it in gear. I just turned it off. I didn't find this out until afterwards, of course, you know, when I was three sheets to the wind on whatever they had given me for the pain. But I came back out to my car and, and it hadn't fully turned off and that's because it wasn't out of gear. I'm thankful my car uh, didn't uh, just roll away on its own. But you know, that's, that's what it is. It's all about God's grace, nothing that we've done, no innovation, no technology, nothing that we can claim today. But the Apostle Paul here in chapter 2 talks to us this morning about the grace of God. There's three things that we want to see about it. First, in verses 1 through 3, look at our text. He says this, and you, he's talking to believers here, hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, here's what he calls us, the children of wrath, even as others. The very first thing that we, Paul reminds us is this, is that you and I, we were dead in our sins. 
Paul magnifies the marvelous grace of God by first revealing to us and reminding us the severity of the situation that we were in, the helplessness of our own natural condition from which Christ has rescued us to the praise of His glorious grace. Paul was speaking to Christians who were members here of the church in Ephesus, and we should not forget that these were real people. These aren't just some figments of our imagination. They were real people, individuals with life stories just like you and I, not all that different from us. And here, Paul is speaking of their lives prior to faith in Christ when he says, who were dead in trespasses in sin. They were in their sins, living in constant rebellion against God as violators of the most holy law. And concerning their, their condition, Paul says that they were dead. Prior to faith in Christ, it's almost like they and us were the walking dead. And this, by the way, is the natural condition of all who are born into this world, that the human race is fallen into sin. In our natural state, you know, my love for that grandchild of mine is, is just growing day by day. And as wonderful and awesome as she is to hold when she's not screaming, I have to remind myself that in her natural state, according to the flesh, she's dead to God. The idea should not surprise anyone who's familiar with the scriptures, especially the writings of Paul, that he talks about this, us being dead in our sins. Um, to Adam, even God said in Genesis 2.17, that of every tree, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Um, it's not that death came instantaneous, physical death, but that spiritual death, that separation from God came when Adam and Eve partook of that. So here was Paul in these three verses, seeking to awaken to the Ephesians and to remind them of the marvelous grace of God that was shown to them in Christ Jesus. He informs them of the hopelessness and the helplessness of the situation from which they were rescued. They were, just like you and I, as I remind you this morning, dead in our sins. Notice that here in verse 1, he doesn't say that they were sick or that they were wounded or that they were even weak or merely, as the world likes to say today, needing just a little assistance to climb out of the predicament that they were in. Nor does the Apostle Paul ever refer to the fact that they were ignorant or, or that maybe they just needed an education, nor does he say that they were immoral, that they only needed to learn to do what was right. No, Paul says here one word that signifies our state before salvation, and that's this, dead in our trespasses and sin. It means that they were spiritually lifeless, dead to God and to the things of God, unable to help themselves in any way. What they needed, therefore, was to be revived, or as Scripture calls it, to be born again, regenerated. Clearly, they couldn't do this for themselves, neither could we, but nobody but, but needed someone to do this for them, for dead things can't make themselves whole. Uh, we look around, and we knew that we needed a whole lot of rain because those businesses that uh, required <clears throat> lawns to grow for them to mow to get paid have been hurting. And so we've seen that the grass couldn't do a thing to make it rain. Something else had to happen. And so here, in, as Paul established, reminding 
the Ephesians here, that they literally were dead in their trespasses and sin. He goes on in verses 2 and 3 to help clarify what this spiritual deadness involved. We see it, 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 four things in these two verses. One, that those dead in sin follow the course of the world. Being dead to God <clears throat> and to the heavenly things of God, they live for the world only and according to its values and its ways. That's what he said. Where in times past you walked according, he says, to the course of this world in verse 2. The second thing is those dead in sin, it says that they live according to the prince of the power of the air. It's a reference to Satan, the evil one. And what Paul refers to elsewhere in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 as the God of this world. We know that Satan's not a God, for there is only one God. But instead, Satan's a created being. He was an angel that was fallen. But Paul does refer to him as the God of this world because if people in their lives don't honor God, and the only way to do that is to accept God's free gift of salvation, then the only other God that they have in their life is Satan. And it might seem like a very radical, very harsh way of speaking. When we think of, of those who honor Satan as a God, we tend to think sometimes only those who, who do it intentionally and knowingly. And there are uh, people this morning that are worshiping Satan in a satanic church. But the scriptures reveal that all those who are alienated from God in their sins do in fact have Satan as God, even if they don't know it. Number four, Paul said that those who are dead in sin by nature are children of wrath. Paul says that those who are not in Christ are children by nature of wrath. The, world, the word nature here refers to the natural inborn characteristics of a thing. So by nature... And according to birth, men and women who are born in this world are children of wrath. Notice the repeated emphasis that Paul has here throughout this text about the marvelous grace of God. And he does it by referencing us back to our state before salvation. The second thing that Paul tells us in, in this passage is referencing the marvelous grace of God, he says in verses 4 through 7, but God made us alive. The very first thing he told us in the first three verses is this, is that we are dead in our trespasses and our sins, but he says, and he begins in verse 4, we're made alive in God. The bad news turns to good news in verse 4, but God, it says, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherein he loved us. That one verse right there ought to spring us to life. Here, Paul magnifies the marvelous grace of God by revealing that it was God who took the initiative to save us in Christ. We, being dead, without hope, unable to help ourselves, God was gracious, God was merciful, and God was kind to us, and Jesus Christ was our Savior. The Scriptures testify elsewhere. We're very familiar with the verse in John chapter 3 and verse 16 that says, For God so loved the world that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Um, Paul writes here, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, hath made us alive together with Christ. First John chapter 3 verse 1 says this, uh, What kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called, he says here, the children of God. It's true 
that Christ bore the wrath of God in our place. This was so that God might be both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. But it doesn't change the fact that the love of the Father was the fundamental cause for our redemption in Christ and our adoptions as sons and daughters. By nature, Paul already established that we're children of wrath, but he says here, in love, the Father determined to adopt us as sons and daughters through the faith that was found in his son, Jesus Christ. Verse 5 says, he goes back to it again. He says, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace, you're saved. We have another reminder. Just in case, Paul said, we forget it. Another reminder of our pitiful, helpless condition. We were dead. But notice he says, that it made us together, alive together with Christ. We don't regenerate ourselves. We cannot cause ourselves to be born again. But according to the word of God, we must be born again from above in order for this transformation to take place. We're reminded of, of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, where he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And just a little bit later, a few verses later, he explained that to be born again meant to be born of the Spirit. It's not something that we do, but it's rather something that is done by God to a person who is spiritually dead, that men and women do not cause themselves to be born again or made alive spiritually is the clear teaching of Scripture. And by way of, of common sense, it's also pretty common. Dead things don't choose to be alive, but they must be made alive. Things that are not cannot choose to be. Things that are not must be called into existence by another. Paul reminds us in Romans 4, 17, that God is the one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Paul mentions here in these verses, in, in verses 4 through 7, three things that we have by virtue of our union with Christ. We read that we are, according to verse 5, we're made, a, we're made alive together with Christ. In verse 6, we learn that God raised us up with Christ. And then Paul tells us in verse 7 that we are made that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this morning, if you are in Christ, it is because God has given you new life in him. God has raised you to a newness of life and will, will raise us again from the grave at the end times according to the scriptures. Why? Because Christ was risen. And then the third thing, that Paul tells us in verses 8 through 10, not only were we dead in our sins and that God has made us alive, but he gives us the reason for that. And it reminds us in verses 8 through 11, so that we might live for him. Paul magnifies the marvelous grace of God by revealing that all that we do in Christ, our believing and our good works that follow, are themselves gifts from God. In verses 8 through 10, we learn that God has saved us graciously, brought us back from the dead so that you and I might live for him. We find these words in verses, verse 8. It says, For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Verse 10 says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. 
say is, is kind of a generic term which really encompasses the many benefits that are ours in Christ. In Christ, remember this morning that we're justified, we're redeemed, we're sanctified, we're forgiven, we're cleansed in adoption, just to mention a few things. And if we wish to speak really generally of all this and more, we can use the word saved, which really means to be delivered or to be made safe. Paul is insistent that we have been saved by grace. And he tells us that there in verse 8, that it's all by God's grace. This morning, the redeemed, I'm one of them, will enjoy eternity with God in the new heaven and the new earth only because God has been gracious to us. He didn't give us what we deserve this morning as children of wrath. Instead, through Jesus Christ, his son, he lavished love upon us, adopted us as sons and daughters, and he did this for no other reason other than because God is merciful and kind. This morning, we're saved by the grace of God alone. But notice the reception of that salvation. It's received, according to verse 8, by faith. When a gift is exchanged, the gift is presented by one, and it's received by another. So how do we receive God's gift of salvation? How do we come to have this gift of salvation on our own? We receive it, according to the word of God, by faith. We lay hold of our salvation and all that it entails by repentance, by believing in Christ Jesus and by trusting in him as our Lord and Savior. For by grace are you saved through faith. And then Paul adds this, not of your own doing, but what? It's a gift of God. We must ask, and what does this and the it of verse 8 refer to? In other words, we might ask Paul, what is not our doing? And what is the gift of God? Is Paul here saying this morning that grace mentioned in verse 8 is not our doing? Is he saying the salvation is not our doing? Or is he saying that the faith is not our doing? To save you a lot of time going back to the Greek text this morning and also the context, we understand that we make it clear that all of those things are in view. The, the, the grace is not our doing. The salvation is not our doing. The faith is not of our doing. None of it is our doing. More precisely, all of it originates from God, all of it. God's grace, the salvation, and even the ability to believe, it's all a gift from God. All of it is a gift by his grace. When Paul says there in verse 8, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, he's referring to not one of those things, grace, salvation, or faith, but to all of them together, considered really as one event. Christians were saved by grace, through faith, and none of this from ourselves. A more literal translation of the Greek maybe would be this. This is not of you or from you, but of God. The salvation, the grace, the faith, it originates uh, not in the believer, but all of this, including the ability to believe upon Christ, is a gift this morning that's been bestowed upon us by God. I also want to say this morning that the context favors the interpretation that all of these things, including the ability to believe, are gifts from God. I would draw your attention back to the text which we've already considered. Remember that men and women were naturally dead in our sins. Dead men can't believe. 
but must be enlivened so that we will believe. And notice also what Paul says in the next verse of verse 9. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Friends, this morning, if faith were something that arose from within us, as opposed to grace or a gift imparted to us from God, then there would most certainly be room for you and I to boast. If this were the case, then when I ask you, why are you in Christ, friend? Why are you saved? Why have you been adopted as a son or a daughter? Then you would be right to say, because I believed. But there's no room for boasting. And this is the reason that all of this, salvation, the grace, the faith, they're gifts from above. So why are we in Christ, friend? Why are we saved? Why have we been adopted as a son or a daughter of Christ? And this only answer will do this morning for us. By the grace of God alone. And then lastly this morning in verse 10, Paul further explains why there's no room for boasting as a Christian. Here we learn when he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. We learned that even our good works come about because God has prepared them beforehand. And we do them because God has created us to walk in them. The theme of this letter, this epistle, is unity in God's inaugurated new creation. And here we begin to learn about this new creation. It's present now in those who have been created anew in Christ Jesus. In other words, place their faith in Jesus Christ. We're said to be now God's workmanship. And as Paul says elsewhere, if any man is a new creature, the old things, he says, are passed away. And behold, all things are become new. In the same source, it's all from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. But here in Ephesians, we learn that God has created us in Christ Jesus for good works, which God hath prepared beforehand that you and I, as children of God, should walk in them. That marvelous grace that saved us came about because you and I were dead in our sins. But God and God alone made us alive through Christ Jesus. Why? So that you and I this morning might live for him. That's what Paul says. So the question goes to you this morning. If this morning you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you've repented of your sin, you've asked for God's cleansing through Jesus Christ, and this morning you could be called a Christian, are you living for him? Paul took the time to remind the church at Ephesus about where they came from, about what it was that we were before salvation, starkly reminding us of our helplessness, our hopelessness. But he said, you know what? There's a change now. We're made alive, not something that we did in and of ourselves, but all through what God did, God gave us life through Jesus Christ, his son. And he gave it to us, not so that we could, as they sing in junior church, hide it under a bushel. Oh, no. So that our light can shine in a world of darkness. So that you and I could walk in a world of darkness and yet be the one light. Why? So that we might live for Jesus Christ. 
if that's the case, if that was the reminder that Paul gave to the church at Ephesus, and now 2,000 years later to you and I, can I ask you this morning, are you living for him? Are you living day by day so that you can walk in the grace that God has bestowed upon you for salvation? Are you using that same grace to live? Maybe, Christian friend, this morning, you're being overwhelmed by your circumstances. Maybe you're overwhelmed by the trial that you're walking through. Maybe you have no clue what God is doing. Can I tell you this morning that God gave you life so that you could live for him? It's that grace that Peter talks about when he said to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's the grace of God that gets us to the finish line.